Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of Is It Shane Ritchie? The Adventures of a Wrestling Journeyman. My name is Carl Stewart, and I'd just like to say thank you for taking the time to listen today, whoever and wherever you are. Thank you to everyone who has recently taken the time to interact with us, and to everyone who has shared our posts on social media. Please do keep interacting with us, as it not only lets us know that you're listening, but it really does help us to improve and grow. We are now available on a number of different podcasting platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. And you can find links to all of the various places you can now find us through our page at www.comroypod.vze.com That's www.comroypod.vze.com You can also download the episodes from there, and the page does contain something of a rogues gallery of various people who've either appeared on the show or who we've mentioned in various anecdotes and stories. Please do check that page out and let us know what you think via our social media pages, which you can also find linked from there. If you enjoy this show, please do continue to like, share, retweet and mention us to others, and we will continue to add more 100% original content on each and every episode. Episode 12 features the first part of our interview with wrestler and promoter Mike Musso, who I've known for a good number of years now. Our regular features, short stories and quote of the week will, for the next two episodes, be included within the interview, as the stories we'll be telling in those sections relate to experiences Mike and I talked about during the interview. Some parts of this interview were recorded last year, so there are a couple of references where the phrase this year was mentioned. The year we're talking about in those instances though is in fact 2020, just to clarify that for the sake of continuity. Mike has some very interesting experiences to talk about, and we discuss both his own adventures in the world of wrestling, and some of our shared experiences over the years which I hope you'll enjoy listening to. So for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 12 of Is It Shane Richard? My guest this week is someone who I've known now for around 15 years, although we only reconnected for the first time in a little while last year. He's been both a wrestler and a promoter, and is also someone who I worked together with quite closely at one time, as we collaborated on various things as promoters, as well as much more besides that. He's someone who I've shared a lot of good fun times with over the years, as well as a number of quite harrowing experiences in the often crazy world of professional wrestling, and I'm sure we'll get into quite a few of those experiences on the podcast today. My guest this week is none other than the merchandise, Mike Musso, 
Mike, thank you for agreeing to come on. Is it Shane Ritchie? How are you? Hi, Carl. Good to speak to you. It's certainly been a while. Thanks for having me on. I think this will be an exciting podcast. First thing I want to get into with you is when did wrestling first appear on your radar? Were you a fan from an early age? And if so, what were you watching in those early days? The very first time I saw wrestling would have been towards the end of 1994. And my parents had just got Sky Television installed and it would have been WWF Mania, which I think was broadcast <laughs> on a Friday night hosted by good old Todd Pettengill. One of my earliest memories, I think I remember seeing Doink the Clown. I actually wanted to watch something else. I have a brother that's four years younger and a sister as well. She'd have been very young, a baby at the time. My dad had heard, get the kids watching the wrestling that's really good, the American wrestling. I didn't want to watch it. So because the wrestling got put on, I actually left the room and pretended I didn't want to watch it. I was captivated by it and actually sort of was sneaking a watch through the windows of the door. And as the weeks wore on, it became a routine that we would watch it. And I admitted that I liked it and basically never looked back. It just became my favourite thing from an eight-year-old child onwards was professional wrestling. I was just captivated by it. What was it? about wrestling in those early days that first drew you in, do you think? And did you find that that changed over time? Yeah, it definitely changed over time. At first, if you go back to that time period, the first angle that I remember seeing being played out in television was Brett and Owen. Owen as the jealous younger brother slowly turning on him. There was tension there. I think they were in a tag team match at the January pay-per-view where it finally uh-huh. blew up at the Royal Rumble. But Owen turned on Brett and then they wrestled right. at WrestleMania. And I actually began supporting Owen. I don't know what that says about me, but I, I started <laughs> cheering the heels, wanting to see Owen win the championship of his brother. I remember Ted DiBiase, I think, was heading up the heel stable at the time. Uh-huh. I mean, he would have had like the Million Dollar Corporation I think Jim Cornette sort of took over as the heel manager at one stage. Shawn Michaels was a big character as well, and I remember being a big fan of his. So really, the characters, I often describe wrestling as superheroes coming to life. You can't go to an arena and see Spider-Man, but you could go to arenas and see Bret Hart. I think that was what attracted me to wrestling, that these were real people, but such larger-than-life characters. I think as I got older, like I grew up as wrestling in some ways grew up. When we hit 1997, I would have been going into high school and that's when the sort of edgier content started to come in. So I was just old enough for the attitude era in WWE to really be appealing to me. You know, Steve Austin, the sort of anti-hero. ECW, I remember discovering that. And I think it was on Bravo in the UK and they had like video distribution as well. So I remember watching that and thinking I was a cool wrestling fan because I knew about the more niche side of wrestling. And I was probably one of those annoying fans that would go to WWF events and sort of chant ECW, <laughs> um, which I, I kind of hate that smart marquee sort of culture, for lack of a better term. So it takes a lot of the fun out of wrestling now. But at that time, I would certainly have been one of those fans trading tapes and trying to see as much wrestling as possible and thinking I was better than those normal wrestling fans that just watched WWF or WCW. 
Yeah, I can relate a lot to that, actually, because I was pretty much the same maybe a few years before that. In 1995, I was a massive, massive fan of ECW, and I was doing the same. I was getting the tapes. I was going to the WWF shows in Birmingham, and I can't describe the joy I felt when I saw somebody else there in an ECW T-shirt. It was like a a little... the secret club. Yeah, it was very much like that. I mean, you know, this was before the popular availability of the internet. So you pretty much did rely on that tape trading scene and newsletters and all of that kind of stuff to sort of keep you connected to those other people. I remember going on the internet as an older fan when you're 13, 14, 15 and reading the results. Because, of course, we didn't see Raw or Nitro or SmackDown until the weekend. Uh-huh. And you would seek out the spoilers you know, to, to read what was going to happen so you could be one step ahead of all your friends in the playground and you tell them, oh, you want to watch this week, such and such is on. You know, it was a big part of life, just being involved in this wrestling niche subculture where you wanted to know everything about it. You said there, Carl, that you went to WWF shows in Birmingham. Did you go to the One Night Only event in 1997? No, I didn't. I went to quite a few of the shows. I think probably almost all of them. But no, I didn't go to that one. That was amazing. I remember being there as a fan and Michaels versus the Bulldog. Absolutely fantastic. Genuine heat. The people were outraged when Davy got beat and they were pelting the ring with rubbish. And I remember Michaels being hoisted up by Rick Rude and Triple H and taunting everyone with the European Championship. It's kind of just special to be there at one of those moments where you actually hear sort of the old timers talk about when there was genuine heat in the buildings and riots uh-huh. and stuff like that. I know you've got your story of a riot that you were involved in, but that's the best example I can think of where I was there personally, albeit as a young fan, and saw genuine outrage and disgust and anger in that building when David got beat. Of course, he dedicated the match to his sister that was dying of cancer at the time. That's right. So it was real. It was as real as real can be on that night. The heat was amazing, and it's just a really cool memory to have, to remember being there and witnessing that. When did you first go to a live British show? I can't remember the exact year or month, but it would have been BWF. Spinner was probably on the card. It would have been in Dunfermline at the Glen Pavilion, which is where they used to visit. And I think... Earthquake was the first one I went to. So whenever the Earthquake tour was, it might have been 98, 99. That would probably have been about 2000. I remember seeing wrestling at a gala day as well, and it was actually Ricky Knight. It was a gala day in North Queensferry or South Queensferry, which would have been a long trip for those guys. But yeah, I remember being aware a bit later on. I don't know how I didn't spot the advertising, because I know that they were doing shows locally before then, but I clearly just didn't know about it until that kind of time when I would have seen posters. It was possibly just coincided with me being 14, 15 and allowed to take trips into the town. And I would then be more aware of spotting posters, maybe reading newspapers and started noticing the advertisements. So BWF was my regular trip for British wrestling for those few years. Okay. Who do you remember being impressed by when you went to those shows? I think I was impressed by everybody. It was just seeing live wrestling that wasn't WWE 
was in itself impressive. Like Uh seeing something that seemed more reachable, more attainable. I remember Drew McDonald, Skull Murphy. I do remember seeing Spinner, Klondike Kate. I don't know whether my first time seeing Bob Barrett was at a BWF show. I think I'd seen him before I started. I think I'd seen Bob as a fan. I do remember seeing our good friend John Short at those BWF shows, <laughs> and I had a very interesting conversation with him, 14 or 15-year-old me. John kept going on about the tournament. Yes. So I'm sitting there waiting for the show to start, and I hear John, this evening's tournament will begin. in, And he kept repeating this phrase, tournament. Now, to me, a tournament is a progressive knockout elimination it's got a quarterfinal, a semi-final, a final, uh-huh. like the King of the Ring tournament. Or if a champion's injured and they have to have a tournament to decide the new champion. So I started quizzing John on this and he was getting very annoyed that I was questioning this. I was like, what's the tournament for? Well, it's the tournament this evening that you're here for. And I was like, yeah, but is it the full tournament tonight? Yes, you'll see five matches. I was like, well, what's the tournament for? What does the winner get? And John was clearly, I remember him being frustrated that this kid was <laughs> asking him questions. But I was frustrated. I wanted to know. I wanted to know everything about it. I wanted to know everything about every wrestler that I was seeing. And I think me and John both found that conversation very frustrating. <laughs> I've since questioned him about it. And he doesn't recall the conversation. No, he had and, to deal um, with dickheads like you every night. Yeah, Probably. I've got a little autograph book from that event as well. And I remember asking for John's autograph, which seems really (laughs) funny looking back on it. And I remember him saying, well, I don't know why you'd want my autograph. I'm no one special. And he's written in the autograph book, John Short, brackets, MC. Just so I would remember who he was. He didn't write John Short, MC in brackets, Bristol in brackets, like he does on his Christmas cards then. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, it wasn't that specific. I've only known you for, what, 25 years, John. I think I can remember who you are without you telling me where you're from. I love how when John answers the phone as well, he reads the number out. <laughs> as if yeah. you don't know that that's the number you've just dialed. <laughs> yeah, that's a very old school thing, reading your phone number out for the benefit of the person phoning. That's just dialed the number. Amazing, I love John. Yeah. I love him, except when I'm actually with him. (laughs) It can be challenging at times. So when you first started going to these live shows, did you already have an idea in your mind that you wanted to become involved in some way? Absolutely. As early as I can remember, I would be wrestling with my little brother in the living room and Mm -hmm. wrestling with my friends in the back garden, which was really controversial when you started out to say that you did that, because obviously... Yeah, You know, the whole backyard wrestling thing. But it's just natural for people to do that. Kids will be doing it today. You know, you start off with your siblings in the living room and then you do it in the playground at school. And then you put four chairs out to make out a ring and you do it with your friends in the back garden. Obviously, it is dangerous when you're imitating what you see on television and you're not trained. But kids will be kids. And there was never any doubt that that's what I wanted to do. So... There must have been a point where you first started approaching promoters at shows about finding out how to become involved. What were some of the responses that you got? It would have been Drew McDonald. Drew said 
if you come along to this show and ask for me, I'll speak to you and we'll see what we can do about getting you some training. I don't know if that was a rib because I turned up and Drew wasn't at the show. <laughs> He'd oh, okay. given me like one of Brian's dates in Edinburgh at the Playhouse in February of 2001. So I turned up and Brian was like, well, uh, Drew's not here, but if you come in and help out, we'll see what we can do. So it just, I must have caught him in a good mood. And then Judo John Brown was Fantastic. in there. He was such a nice man as well. And not everybody on the crew at the time I would describe as a nice man. No. Um, especially because they had the old school mentality. They had no business being a nice man to some kid that was turning up trying to get involved in the business. It just went yeah, absolutely. what was going on. So they probably were all perfectly nice blokes if I met them now. But yeah, Judo John was fantastic help. He just wanted to teach us. He was patient with us. And he said after he'd done the training, we're not going to be back here until March. And he gave us the dates. So like it was the following month. And he said, why don't you rent out a little area of a sports hall and practice what I've shown you? And there was an older guy there as well being trained, Jerry, and he sort of took the lead on that and booked a sports hall, and we did. We continued doing the tours, never for Brian again, because I don't know the exact scenario, but when we went to the next set of dates, it was Jake that was running it. At first, Jake was like, oh, no, you're not getting in. You've got to get a ticket. Judo John spotted us. And he was like, they're all right. They were a big help last time. Let them in. They'll help with the ring and stuff. And Judo John vouched for us. And that was us. We were in the door and we were the lackeys helping out and setting up and stuff. And we would come and do these tours. And in between the tours, we would go to the sports hall in Falkirk, where Jerry lived, and practice what we'd been taught before the shows. So who else was on Jake's team at that time? Would Chris McNeil have been there? Yes, he was, with the most distinctive voice. I can still hear the voice in my head. (laughs) The promotion was called Midlands, Midlands Pro Wrestling, I think. He would start the show off and he'd be like, welcome to a night of Midlands Professional Wrestling. I don't know how you would score that as a Chris McNeil impression. That's not bad as it goes. um, He ribbed us and gave us a hard time. But, you know, that's what built character I look back on my memories of working with most of that team fondly. Uh And Spinner as well. Like I met Spinner years later when I was working for you, Carl. And I've told the story many times. You probably know it. I think me and Spinner did talk about it. But he was really aggressive towards us on that first night back in February at Brian's show. Uh And the respect that I have for him doing it and making us earn his respect is amazing. I've not spoken to Spinner in years. But if I haven't already, I'd like to actually thank him for giving me and my friend Ian a hard time on that first night and making us earn acceptance and respect. This is probably a whole other podcast with how things have changed now, but I'm really thankful for the respect that was drilled into me by people like Spinner and the team that were working with Jake at the time. Yeah, I understand that completely. Blondie Barrett, Bob, he is the first person that ever properly was nice to me. Judo John was nice as well, but Bob was just so friendly and I felt like I could go to him with anything if I was a bit worried about dealing with somebody or when I started doing rumbles and tag matches and stuff. I remember in the Albert Halls in Stirling, Bob calming me down and being like, well, here's four things you can do in the rumble. There's an axe handle or you kick the guy in the gut. And he gave me like four moves 
that could be my go-to rumble moves. And Bob was always so friendly. The team, who I think had probably clocked that I looked to Bob as a bit of a safety net when they were winding me up. The team once told me Bob was running late getting to the show. Him and Wendy were driving. I can't remember where we were, but they told me he died in a car crash. And I was devastated. They'd actually convinced me. This is how harsh the ribs were back then. Uh-huh. Um, they told me, oh, don't mention his name around here. You'll upset everybody. And then half an hour later, he turned up. And I was walking about in a daze just because he'd made such an impression on me even then, so early on. And I was like, Bob, you're here. <laughs> and I, I, I told him. <laughs> I told him, and I remember Wendy being furious that they'd said that. She was not happy at all, mm. which she probably wouldn't be if somebody said that you'd met your demise as a joke. You know, mm. it wouldn't be the nicest thing to tear up in here. But yeah, Bob was part of that team. Obviously, Jake's sons, Daz, who is Sergeant Slaughter, and David, who is the in the Chris McNeil voice, the original Undertaker. And he did it very well, actually, the original Undertaker gimmick. You've already mentioned Blondie there. Was he the one, really, that sort of took you under his wing and helped you the most, would you say? Him and Judo John. But other people helped as well. My first match was the 14th of May, 2001. The crowd, I think, there was only about 30 people there. And that was a relief to me at the time, because I was like, I didn't want loads of people there. I was nervous. Uh-huh. And I remember them saying, I think that's because we announced that you were going to be wrestling, that nobody's turned (laughs) up. Yeah, it was me and Sergeant Slaughter versus Spike Anderson. And they called him Lugsing. Um, Oh, yeah. Uh, Kevin Kelly. Yes. But he had a Scottish gimmick up here. Right. And the pair of them, Kevin and Darren, were another really big help. They would teach us things. So whilst they gave us our fair share of grief, they also were a big help and were willing to give advice. Uh So how did that first match end up going? Um, As well as could be. We'd obviously had a few things that we could do and the experienced professionals put us in there and had us do the things that we could do with some degree of competency at that stage and helped us through the rest and got us through it. Yeah, it wasn't a disaster. (laughs) That's my memories of the first match. I wish I had it on tape, but I don't. So, moving on from there, how did you stop working with that crew and then end up going to train with the illustrious Jake the Snake Roberts? I never stopped working with that crew. I kept going to all the tours. They tasked me one day with, and again, it was me and Spike. So we've got Jake the Snake Roberts on the bill. We were at the Caird Hall and they said, can you go down and meet him? Because we need to get him up in his dressing room. He's not sure where it is. Can you just look after him? Make sure he's all set. And that's your job tonight. Just look after him. Because I think they were expecting him to be a bit difficult. So they kind of wanted to give him a couple of runners. Right. Or maybe they just wanted us out of their hair. It was a big show, the Caird Hall. So they probably weren't going to put us on that night because you had to be of a much higher standard to be on at the more prestigious venues. So Uh they were probably all sorted and they just wanted to give us a little job to keep us busy. And it was to run about after Jake. And we were more than happy to do it. You know, somebody that whilst we respected the crew there, we both grew up in American wrestling. 
So that was an amazing job for the night. Look after Jake. Yeah, this is going to be great. How little did you know? Well, he certainly did have us running about for him. I know that there was a few disagreements with Klondike Jake and Jake Roberts. He wanted things with Polaroids and stuff like that. And we had to go back and forth and be the messenger. And Jake kind of took a liking to us and talked to us for the whole night and told us he was planning on starting a wrestling school and gave us his number. So that was the last thing we expected was to leave with Jake the Snake Roberts' mobile number because to us, he was a huge star. He is a huge star. You know, he's a massive star in the 80s. And yeah, that was that connection made. We did start training down with him and we told the crew about it the next tour or whatnot. And they were kind of, oh, what are you going down training with him for? Because there was this divide. It was weird. I remember a previous tour, they had Tatanka on the bill. And the kind of consensus was you could hear them whinging about, yeah, that yank, rotten. Uh-huh. They kind of looked down on the Americans. Yeah. And there was a sort of divide. There was a kind of stigma attached to it. So, yeah, that became another source of ribbing for us that we were running after Jake and what you're doing down there training for him. But for the next year or so, we did. Every couple of weeks, we'd be down there getting a coach overnight from Edinburgh to London and getting the train from London to, at first, it was Aldershot in a barn. It was like two floors. And the top floor of the barn was where the ring was. We were halfway through training one day and one ring post fell through the floor. (laughs) So we had to evacuate the barn and that was the end of that training building. And then it moved to St Albans after that and Jake was nice enough. I think he sort of acknowledged that we were coming a long way to train and he actually let us stay at his house from from Uh on. The house that he was sharing with a lady over here at the time. Wow. Yes. I had my own interactions with Jake while he was living over here. In fact, I worked with him quite a lot at one particular time. The thing I always found was you never knew which Jake was likely to turn up. Sometimes he'd be quite lucid and he'd be as nice as anything. And then you might get him the next day and he's off his head on something and um, very difficult to deal with. With you being around him so much at that time, what was that like day to day? It was an adventure. (laughs) Yeah. Jake's problems are well documented. You know, I do have some stories, but some of them I'm reluctant to share because I respect the fact that he's, by most accounts, managed to turn a corner in his life. And I know he's doing well at the moment. I think DDP helped him a lot get back on his feet. You know, he was always good to me. So I can only judge people by how they were to me. And Jake was very motivational. There was times that I was feeling down and feeling disheartened and Jake picked me up and gave me a pep talk. So those are the memories that I like to keep from my time with Jake. Absolutely, there was things that I saw that a 15, 16-year-old boy should not have seen or been in the same room as certain things were going on. That's a given to anybody that's heard Jake's story and that things that Jake would admit himself that he went through a very bad patch. One thing I remember hearing Jake say was nobody ever wanted to be a drug addict. You never get anybody as a child saying, look at that person lying in their own vomit over there. That's my dream. I want to be like him. A lot of the stuff he comes out with like that. He's a good storyteller. He's very inspirational in his analogies. We used to watch Smackdown before going to training and we would be sitting there and Jake would be saying what was being done well and what he didn't think was done well and how he would have done it. And to be honest, 
some of the training that we got sitting in his living room was better than the training we got in the ring. Yeah, I can understand that because you learn a lot sharing a car with people. You learn a lot being in the dressing room with people. It's not just necessarily the physical component of wrestling. It's also the mental side of things as much as anything. Yeah, and there's very few people that are better than Jake at the mental side of wrestling. When Jake's switched on and got a clear head, he would be an amazing coach for WWE or you know wherever he would land. I know he's with AEW now, but I hope he's being used to his full potential. Because whilst I maybe only got a glimpse of the potential Jake has as a teacher with the time that I spent with him, I'm sure that so many people could benefit and his influence could have such a positive impact on the current wrestling product if he's on his A-game and if he's used to his full potential. Mm -hmm. So after the time with Jake, you actually went to Canada for a period of time. Let's get into that a little bit. Where did you go and who did you go over there to train with? Well, Jake actually kind of fell out with me at the end when I went to Canada. But I think Jake was falling out with everybody at the time. There were so uh-huh. many trainees that just wouldn't be there anymore and be like, oh, we're such and such. Oh, Jake cussed him out last week. He thinks he's done X, Y, or Z. Yeah, he thinks and he works for the BBC. Yes, there was that one that he thought somebody was an undercover reporter for the BBC, and it was crazy. He fell out with me, and it was because I'd used Colin Mackay's ring for the show that I'd ran before I went to Canada. I shouldn't have done it because I had no experience and no business running a show in 2003. But it was something I wanted to do. And I'd used Colin's ring and Colin had had a fallout with Jake. And, and yeah. I got this email saying that I'd betrayed his trust by working with Colin when Colin was his enemy and stuff like that. And I sent an email back apologising and reaching out to him. And he never replied. And I've reached out a few times since. I don't know if he's ever got the messages. I'd love to reconnect with him. I know a few of the guys from his training school over here managed to connect with him over the years. But yeah, that was kind of the transition to moving over to Canada. But one of the things when I told him I was planning on doing that, he pitched to me to move down to St Albans and be down there full time. And he would try and help me. Given that he fled the country six months later (laughs) with allegations of animal cruelty, which I don't think he was guilty of, Somebody reported him and said that the snake was malnourished and the snake was refusing to eat. I know this because I was tasked with defrosting the rat, putting it in the cage. And then at the end of the weekend, we had to get rid of it because, you know, the meat would be going off and the snake was refusing to eat it. He should have taken it to a vet, but he was trying. It wasn't a cut case of, oh, Jake's abusing animals. But that was kind of the controversy that he just upped and left and went back to the States. But yeah, at one point he pitched coming down there and doing more with him. And who knows what I could have got out of that six months. It was towards the end of his time here. And Uh it was probably the right move going over to Canada. When I went over there, to be honest, I totally balls the whole thing up. It was a completely different environment. I went over and I trained at the Squared Circle Gym under Rob Fuego. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Edge and Christian and Joe Legend and that group. The gym that they all came from, he came from there as well. The Calgary side of things, there wasn't much going on there at the time. The Hart Brothers training school, I don't think was running. If it was, I don't even think there was a Hart brother involved in it. Uh-huh. So Toronto just seemed like the more attractive option. I wanted to go there and learn more stuff and further my wrestling education. 
And I think naive 17-year-old probably thought, well, that's closer to America, so I might get... It was easier to get the visa, so that's why I was in Canada rather than America. And a naive 17-year-old probably thought, oh, I might end up on Raw, you know, like a few <laughs> months later if I move over there. Rob trained Gail Kim and um, another girl that worked for TNA. Her name was Chantel. I don't know what she worked as, but a few people from that school ended up on TNA. So it was a connected school, but it was very Lucha-inspired. So I'd gone from Jake, and I was infatuated with Jake. Anything he said to me was gospel. Uh So Jake says, you know, they're running too fast. Take your time. Work a hold. There's a saying, when in Rome, be a Roman. And Uh I wish I understood that when I went over there, because they must have thought I was an arrogant tosser when I was there, because I was like, well, Jake says. I learned a lot but was reluctant to really throw myself into the different style of training. Physically, I should have been really upping my cardio because I couldn't keep up with them at the time because they were just super fast. A veteran Canadian wrestler that also trained, he sat there and I'd broken my big toe, so I was out for a few weeks. And I was like, this is just so much faster than what I'm used to. And I remember that wrestler saying, yeah, he wasn't trained like that. I don't know why he's doing all this lucha stuff. And that was probably the worst thing that I could have heard at the time because it backed up what I was thinking. (laughs) I should have just been there and been like, this is the stuff that they do, so let's learn this. Uh But instead, I just disagreed with everything. I had no business disagreement. I hadn't done anything. I wasn't capable of putting a match together. I should have just learned whatever I could. But my benefits that I got from my time over there were limited And that was because I'd thrown myself at the training from Jake. That was my Bible. So, Uh you know, live and learn. Mistakes are made. But it was a fun year being over there. I did learn a lot. And I think as I became more, because I actually became more athletic as I progressed in wrestling. And I did retain a lot of the information and I would start doing a lot of the drills that I maybe struggled with over there, over here, or some of the moves and some of the sequences. So it was certainly beneficial, my time in Canada, but I wish I'd made more of the opportunity. And it was my own mindset and attitude problem that prevented me getting more from that experience. How did you find life generally in Canada compared to being over here? It was amazing. I'd love to live over there. It's a different culture. I like the North American lifestyle. I can't even put into words what it is about it. I like the way the cities are laid out. Toronto was a 10-hour bus ride to New York. So I went to New York several times. I went to WrestleMania 20. And I'd kind of said to myself, I want to go to WrestleMania 20. So I've done that as a fan. And then that's my line. I need to stop going to shows and to start focus on being a professional rather than a wrestling fan. It was an amazing show to be at. And it is a good experience going to WrestleMania. But there's that feeling, you know, when you start being a wrestler in the business... You're then discouraged, you know, don't be a mark, yeah. don't be a punter, <laughs> which is weird, actually. You don't want to be too enthusiastic about anything because you'll sound like a mark. Can you imagine a football player being mocked for watching the World Cup? You know, it just wouldn't happen. But for some reason, we do it. It's a funny wrestling thing. But yeah, going to WrestleMania 20 was good. I saw Michaels versus Flair in the garden just before WrestleMania a few months prior. And that was an amazing match to see live. And just being in New York and other places I visited, my last month I spent traveling North America, 
just the sightsee, you know, and I loved it. I went to California. I went to the West Coast through Vancouver, Calgary, Banff. I went all over the States and I loved it. It was a good year. Short Stories Yes, it's time, once again, for Short Stories. For anyone listening for the first time, this section of the show focuses on my experiences in wrestling with the wonderfully eccentric MC of many years' experience, Mr. John Short. Again, if you are new to the show, for a more comprehensive background on who John is, please do go back and listen to episode 1, as I gave a little bit more of an overview of John in that first episode. Over the years, I've made hundreds and hundreds of trips in the car with John, across the length and breadth of Britain, and have worked on hundreds and hundreds of shows with him. He's someone I actually think the world of, even though you might not necessarily think so from listening to these stories. Some of my favourite times in wrestling have involved John in some way. So, as I've mentioned on a number of occasions before, I tell these stories not to knock the guy. Well, maybe a little bit. But more to celebrate and share his wonderful eccentricities with others. I should point out that he is a friend of both myself and my family, and has been for a long time. He also has absolutely no problem with me telling these stories. Just to make that clear. You and I both... I think it's fair to say have an eye for a practical joke or two. I've recently spoke on this podcast about some of the things that we used to do, how we would rib each other on each other's shows by adding fucking awful raffle prizes to each other's raffles. Um, the watermelon. Like a, yeah, I remember the watermelon. Sean Harkin won that, didn't he? <laughs> I have no idea. but um, I'm sure he did. I'm sure that's where it ended up. I think Sean Harkin won the watermelon. Just the sheer randomness of, you've got a traditional prize of a bottle of wine and a box of chocolates, and then coupled with that, this enormous watermelon. It's just, <laughs> it's just the sheer randomness of that image, and of course, did, of John announcing it. Did you not give me a Best of Wham VHS? Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you started it off by adding like a tin of baby food and a can of potatoes or something to one of my raffles in Forfa. And then the next time, that's when I brought the videos, because Tracy, my wife, her uncle had a second-hand shop at the time and had this massive collection of the worst VHS tapes you've ever seen in your life, one of which was Wham! the video. There was um, a guide to exterior decorating with John Craven from Newsround, some sort of guide to fly fishing. (laughs) But yeah, that was my contribution to your next raffle. Oh, and a Chippendales video as well. We gave them away as well. People walked away with those prizes. <laughs> That's the great thing. You know, somewhere there's these people that may still have in their house all these terrible VHSs and had to take away, you know, a jar of baby food. Probably a 60-year-old man who hasn't had a child for <laughs> decades. But um, Hopefully Sean still doesn't have the watermelon. I can't imagine yeah, that would have I, aged well. And, of course... The legendary goldfish raffle. Oh, that was just... 
when you play a practical joke on somebody, it's done for the reaction. And John reacted to it. See if John had have just said, and the top prize is a goldfish, and just that was it. And did the raffles, or you win the goldfish. That wouldn't have been funny. It uh-huh. would have just been, oh, he just no-sold it. But he made such a song and dance about this goldfish. Have you seen the little video that I put out recently? Yes, yes, uh, I have. And it actually brought back some things that I'd forgotten as well. I remember him being absolutely outraged. And I remember him coming to me the whole time backstage going, well, I'm not happy about all of this. And uh, I don't but John, this is actually nothing to do with me for once. <laughs> uh, and just constantly coming and whinging to me. And one occasion I didn't, I don't think Mike's very happy about it either. Quite who he thought was actually behind it, I'm not sure. But um... I think my cover story for John was, John, I don't even know who's done it. I told the team, go out and get some raffle prizes. And this is what they've come back with. We're just going to have to go with it. <laughs> I don't even think that would be legal now to give away a goldfish. It was at the time. Maybe it wasn't. Let's say it was, just to keep me in the clear. <laughs> but the fact that he'd gone around the hall, first of all, he says goldfish something like 28 times. And on my video, I ping every time. Like, yes. It's like it's a correct answer. So he oversold it to the max. And the fact that he had spent time questioning people to find out who in the audience kept fish. Yeah, he spent most of the pre-show, rather than being in the dressing room getting his announcements, he spent most of the pre-show asking people as they were coming into the hall, like, if they knew anything about goldfish. (laughs) Can you imagine arriving at the show with your family? Maybe John was taking tickets, I don't know. Sometimes I have John take the tickets at the door as well. So he takes his, oh, very well, sir, here's your ticket back. You know, he takes the stub and they say, by the way, sir, before you go in... Do you happen to keep goldfish? You'd just be like, what? You know, you've come up with the kids to the wrestling. That must have been a question that he asked everybody that came through the door. That's the only explanation for him knowing who kept fish. And then he's in the ring and he says, if you win the goldfish and do not want to look after the goldfish, there is a gentleman over here. Sir, 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 you're not listening. And he sort of reprimands the person. <laughs> yeah. And by the time the guy actually hears him, he's practically shouting at him. I understand you keep goldfish. Is that right? It must have just been such a bizarre experience for that live crowd. You've got to tell us the story of the missing person incident. Now, I only found out about this recently through talking to you online. And I thought it was absolutely fantastic. This was the one and only time that I've actually been genuinely annoyed with John. But his response to me being annoyed kind of made it all okay again, because there wasn't much I could say to his response. So we're at a big venue, and there was a situation where a person locally had gone missing, and it was very serious. I've got to stress that, because I don't want to be seen as making fun of the situation at all. That's why I was angry with John. Um, It was very serious. They expected foul play. You know, the family are obviously really caught up about it and want answers, want closure. And they were in the middle of a campaign to try and draw awareness to it and find out just whatever information they could. You know, this is somebody's son, friend, brother, what have you. 
I can't imagine being a family where somebody's gone missing. The guy was on a night out and just never came home and there was reason to believe he'd come to some harm. And the family had actually asked the hall if they could be present to hand out their flyers and if maybe we could give a little announcement to draw attention to it as well, which of course I was more than happy to do anything to help when people are in a situation like that. So things went awry when it was John that was the MC for this particular show. What could possibly go wrong? So I, <laughs> I briefed John. I think we gave him a copy of the flyer and he read the announcement. He said, the family are very concerned. If you have any information, please report it on the number that is on the flyer. The family would like him to be found and come home, you know, says all the all the stuff. It was fine. It was absolutely fine. He did a grand job. It was in good taste. And then he adds, and sir, if you're amongst us this evening, enjoying the matches, please come forward and make yourself known. And everybody gasped because it was a big news story at the time. And to suggest that he was sitting there in the fifth row, it was like really inappropriate. You know, a high profile missing person case. And that's what it was locally. I was behind the curtain at the time. And one of the venue managers came down and was like, was that really appropriate? Saying that he might be there in the crowd. They think that the boy's dead. And you're saying that he's going to be sitting there enjoying the matches. And I had to sort of apologise and be like, I'm so sorry that was not written down for him. He's just ad-libbing, he meant well. He clearly just didn't think before he said it, I'm so sorry, please say sorry to the family if they're here and if they're offended. I don't know if they were or not at that stage. And John came back and I was like, John, they think the guy's dead and you're suggesting he's sitting there with a foam hand watching the show. (laughs) I was like really annoyed about it because I'd just been called out by the venue. And do you know what John's response was? He said, in all fairness, Mike, he may have seen the posters. (laughs) Never mind the thousands of posters asking for information on the man's whereabouts. He couldn't resist W3L wrestling showdown. He had to. (laughs) Jesus Christ, John. Oh, God. But yeah, John Short, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, the one and only. Hopefully the family gets some closure. I can't imagine being in that situation. I watch a lot of murder documentaries, or that, yeah, you know, that type of yeah. stuff. And you hear about families where there's a missing person and you know they get a lead and they're digging for something or they're looking for something. And you just can't imagine being that family. Do you want to find and have that identified as your person? Because that eliminates any chance that they're ever going to come walking back through the door. It must be horrible. So it's kind of weird having this discussion about John Short saying something utterly ridiculous that only John could possibly manage to say whilst talking about something that is totally harrowing and my heart goes out to the family that were involved. And please, no offence is intended in us sharing a story about our old friend John and his ability to put his foot in his mouth on this podcast. Well, I mean, if they are enjoying listening to this podcast and... um... (laughs) Oh, God. <laughs> Do you like how I tried to protect us there? <laughs> I don't think there's much chance of that. Um... <laughs> oh, dear. 
going back to the ribs, what are some of the best ribs that you have either been involved in or that you've seen that you can remember? The goldfish one counts up there. <laughs> I'm trying to think. There's been so many, not all of which you can share <laughs> on a podcast. We once managed to convince a trainee that wasn't ready for a match that he was going to be involved in a death match at a show. That was quite funny. He was looking at someone's belt, and we saw well, that's it now. He thinks you're wanting his belt. You're going to have to wrestle him in a match. And we told the trainee that we'd changed the card and it was going to be a death match. And he wasn't properly clued in and stuff yet. But to the trainee's credit, he was ready. You know, he was like, well, I'm going to have to do this then. And he was getting like he'd borrowed some knee pads. And we made him hand out the new run sheets to the rest of the team that had the death match scheduled in. That was a good one. And it was done in good jest. You know, we took him out for drinks afterwards and made him feel part of the team. I would like to stress that. Because in today's day and age, you can't have fun anymore. The reality is, we had a laugh, and this person probably felt a bit uncomfortable at the time. But at the end of it, he was part of the laugh. He felt part of the team. He felt like it was some sort of initiation. And it's a story that he can tell from years to come. And, you know, we've all got a lot of time for this guy now. He's a good part of our team. I wouldn't name him. I don't want to cause him any embarrassment. But those that know will know. And if you ask him, he'd have just been like, well, was what it was. It was funny looking back on it. But some people would take that now and be like, that's bullying. That's outrageous. Yeah. You know, and suggest that we should all be hung or publicly burned to death for having the audacity to have a bit of fun at somebody's expense. It's just kind of the way of the world, isn't it? But that was really good. And I've told a condensed version of it there to try and make it a little bit more appropriate for the podcast. I mean, it's basically like the world just lost its sense of humour at some point. But I mean, back in those days, we did have a good amount of fun and nobody thought anything of it. Yeah, we still do, but you've just got to be careful because things just get twisted. People take what they want from things. And if somebody wants to make you look bad, they'll take something that was intended in good jest and paint it out to be some horrible act. And, you know, you just got to be careful. Cancel culture, I believe they call it. Yeah. The idea that just because one person is offended by something, the entire world has to be. And there's a lot of peer pressure, I think, if you like, on people to sort of conform to this idea of, you know, I must be seen to be acting in a certain way now. This whole social wokeness, um, yeah. I refer to it as people feel the need to be fashionably woke. You know, there's even wrestling promotions that use their social wokeness almost as a marketing tool. Which to me is crazy. It doesn't fit with wrestling. You know, we talked about some of the American promotions that we watched growing up. We had WWF, Attitude. WCW, where the big boys play. ECW, join the revolution. And now, you know, are we going to have W3L, we're a safe space. It's just (laughs) the beggar's belief. I don't understand it. It doesn't fit. You can do charity shows to raise funds for things, raise awareness for things have maybe some social campaigns built in but to have your brand so heavily focused on we're all inclusive we're a safe space it just to me it's not wrestling it's misplaced branding the families aren't interested in that the little wrestling bubble on the internet is wanting to be socially woke and some promotions have a niche audience that are focused from that online bubble but most of it the promotion i run w3l 
Our followers are following us on social media because Jimmy's mum wants to find out when we're next at the local town hall. They don't want to hear about how socially woke we are. Uh It's a can of worms. We better not get too far into it. But that's my general feelings on the situation. Not to belittle some serious issues, but the way the issues are handled, I think have been misplaced and to the detriment of business. And you can handle those issues without them being to the detriment of business and your brand. That's my two cents. No, absolutely. I mean, it's something you deal with behind the scenes. But these days, with social media being what it is, and this pressure on people, well, this pressure that people seem to feel, to need to be seen doing the right thing, this attention-seeking behaviour is quite disturbing, really. Yeah, it's a competition. Who's doing social awareness best? And it's mad, I don't understand it. We've got, when you said behind the curtain, recent events have led me to have a look and put an actual code of conduct in place because there was absolutely some valid points raised this year that needed to be addressed. But I'm not putting that code of conduct online for everybody to see. of course not. That is something private. That is not part of your presentation to your audience. That is something internal. You wouldn't take all of your internal memos from a company that you worked for and put them on the company website. You know, it's it's policy and procedure. Madness. Absolute madness, the stuff that's been made public. And if something horrible does happen in your business... You don't necessarily want to shout about it from the rooftops. Think of something ridiculous, for example. If you run a bakery and two members of staff get into a fight in the bakery and one of them grabs a loaf of bread and shoves a loaf of bread up the other bloke's ass. It's like, you know, like I, I knew of... that's where you were going. <laughs> and then, it, it, you as know, long as it's not a baguette, you're fine. You know, bakery sodomy has been committed, but you would not, as the owner of that bakery, stick a notice on your window saying there's been a bit of loaf sodomy, but (laughs) we're we're looking into it and we're reviewing our policies (laughs) to ensure it never happens again. It just wouldn't happen. I just don't understand some people's approach to dealing with this in public. Yeah, I mean, you said about putting a code of conduct into place. And, you know, I agree with that. But I think that should basically be there in the first place, shouldn't it? You know, Not necessarily a written code of conduct, but just have some basic moral decency. Yes. Things that shouldn't need to be said now need to be written down, apparently, to show that you've expressed to people how you want them to behave while they're under your watch, so to speak. So stuff like I would never expect any of my team to be doing something. Luckily, none of my team have, to my knowledge. But now the things that I would assume that they would just behave themselves and not do, I think, right, we probably should just get it all written down so that we are saying, look, these are the standards we expect Uh our people to have whilst they're on site and doing business for us. Moving away now from anything bread or anus related, what are some more rib stories that spring to mind? There was a referee... And we announced him as various different serial killers throughout the course of a tour. (laughs) So Wizard, our announcer now, I don't know if you've ever worked with Wizard, he's tremendous. Yeah, he Uh, did the last set of shows that I ran. He's super involved in W3L, a great member of our team that organises quite a lot for us as well. He does a lot of our video editing and heads up our weekly web show showdown. Honestly, he's a godsend to have Wizard on our team. 
and an avid listener of this podcast, I should add. It'll be hearing that, hey. There we go, putting you over, wizard. You might have um, given some more money. <laughs> don't never let people know just how valuable they are to you. I mean, because okay. then we'll, they start. We'll, we'll edit. We'll edit. So we could, you know, I could easily train somebody else up. No, I couldn't. Wizard is irreplaceable, and I think he knows that. I do praise upon him. At least I hope I do. I probably don't do it often enough, so I'm happy for you to leave that in. But Wizard announced this referee as various different serial killers. So, first of all, before our matches this evening, I'd like to introduce the referee for all contests, Mr. Harold Shipman. <laughs> this referee would just sort of wave at the crowd. I was exporting a show. Naming the referees silly things has always been a thing. I've been doing a lot of work with our footage, our video archive. And there was one show recently that I was just watching the introduction to, and it was John Short. And he introduced the referee as Mr. Gaylord Humperdinck. <laughs> Just bizarre. How could we get away with that? Were you on the gala day where Brad Fusion was a German? I don't remember that one. I might have been on it, but I've got lots and lots of memories of those gala days. I don't know how we got away with this. This was indoors. And I don't even know whose idea it was. I don't think it was mine, but I clearly greenlit it. And we would certainly never do anything like this now. I'd like to see we run a far more professional outfit. See, this but... is why I need to come back. <laughs> Knock that right out of us. Um, <laughs> Brad wanted to be German for the day. And he came down to the ring going, get down! Get down if you want to live! He was like a German soldier sort of thing, like a Nazi throwback. And he was announced as, uh, ladies and gentlemen, introducing the German powerhouse Auschwitz, McBain. <laughs> like, so inappropriate. And this was 2007, 2008 or something uh-huh. like that. I wouldn't dream of doing that now. I don't know if that's because the world's changed or I've matured too much. But I'd be like, no, we can't say that. I think you have matured too much. I think I definitely need to come back and rectify this problem. My main memory of those gala days was pretty much just how fucking bleak some of them were. I don't know if it's still the same now. I don't know if you still even do them. But some of the other acts that would be booked on these gala days. The Singing Chef. (laughs) Yep. He's still Uh, there. Really? Yep. Oh, that's amazing. He once sat beside me. He wasn't the Singing Chef that day. He was doing a Johnny Cash tribute. And... He just sat beside me and sung Hurt, of all things. Um, oh, he, he actually expanded his repertoire a little bit then, because the times I saw him, he would take great pains to explain to me how Johnny Cash was the world's first rapper, and then sing Ring of Fire about five times. I'd made the mistake of wearing a Johnny Cash t-shirt, I think, because he never usually speaks to me. Then he came up to me and he was like, oh, what's your favourite Johnny Cash song? And I was like, oh, they're all good. He's like, I'm going to sing you one now. And I was like, just surprise me. And yeah, heart of all things, that put me in a right good mood. <laughs> An amazing song, but it was awkward. He sat there and sung the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, there was a Singing Chef. There was the Dog and Duck show. There was the Birds of Prey show where the guy couldn't control the birds, which was always interesting. You're trying to pack the ring away and there's like fucking buzzards circling over the top of your head. Yeah, that was always an interesting one. There was one 
where I'm sure it was the same town that we were right in front of the stage and we were doing our last match and things have been going relatively well because some of those gala days you get a right good crowd around the ring they can either be really good or horrible or just non-existent or um, violent yeah or violent I've got three stories that have just come to mind and they're all from the same village and it's a rough village one of the villains is in the ring and told a kid to shut up or something and the parent said if he says that again to your son get your knife out and stab him <laughs> I can believe it. Another time at the same place, we are doing our tag match. It's like the finale. And things have been going well. The crowd were into it. And halfway through the match, the magician comes on the stage 10 feet away from us. So half of the crowd are watching the magician and half of them are watching us. And we can't hear ourselves think. Because booming over the PA system is this kid's magician doing the kid's magic show act. It just became difficult. It was quite a difficult day doing the gala days because you're there a long time. You don't feel appreciated. The conditions aren't great. And I was probably in a bad mood to begin with. So we finished the tag match up and then we got on the stage with the magician and took a bow, like the, the two baby faces, because I have to say thanks for talking over our set. You know, but why? <laughs> why? Come on. We're trying to work. You know, We're trying our best to deliver what we're being paid to do, tell a story and entertain people. And they have a magician talking over us 10 feet away. It's not even as if it was at the other end of the park. We're working to the back of some people in the same row. Some of them have got the back of their head because they're watching the magician. And the person Uh next to them are watching the wrestling. It was just awkward and things had been going so well. I was particularly annoyed that they sabotaged our our shitty 10-minute tag match that we were doing at the end of the the thing. And the last straw for this village was they had no committee members on. They're always understaffed, and I feel for them. It must be a lot of work to organise these things, and they don't have that many volunteers willing to give up the time to help. But we've got a ring there, and they don't pay us for security. It's not paid for in the budget for me Uh to hire somebody to look after our ring. So it's in our contracts that they must have a committee member guarding the ring, and they didn't. And kids kept running in the ring before we uh-huh. even started. And before the show started, I'd already gone to them maybe four or five times. I've been reasonable. And I'm sure the committee members I'm speaking to were drunk as well. There was loads of people drinking and stuff on this field, like cans of tenants and bottles of Buckfast kicking about and whatnot. And eventually I'm standing all the way at the other end of the park is where they had us changing. And I'm standing at the other end of the park keeping an eye on the ring. And I see a kid in it again. And this time, all right, I've had it. I'm going to sort this out. So I'm running in full wrestling gear. I've got the tights and the boots on her. I'm running and making my way to the ring. And I dove in. I went to grab the child and missed him by a few centimetres. I wasn't going to like hit him or anything. I was going to just grab him and say, this is our ring. You're not allowed to be in here. We're not insured for it. Get out. That's all I would have done. I don't want to make it sound like I was running into the ring and I was going to pile drive a child for pissing about in our ring. You know, and again, I said, look, if this keeps happening, we are not wrestling today and you will be paying the full amount. And we go and do the first match and kids were putting silly string in the ring and stuff, leaning in the ring. They weren't keeping them back. And that's another thing. We asked them to lay out a cordon to make sure that there's room between the ring and the front row. And they weren't doing that. So when the silly string happened, we're literally a minute into the match and I just stopped, rolled out the ring and left and said, well, that's your first match gone. Are you going to put committee members around the ring 
or are we going to just collect our money and go home? And they said at that point, oh, okay, we'll put committee members around the ring. But I had to get to that point where I actually had to. It's the one time that I've aborted a match. You know, they're not going to pay us extra to clean the canvas at the end of the day because there's silly string all over it. Uh-huh. Uh, gala days can be very harrowing experiences. Or they can be really fun experiences if the sun's out, you know, and there's a good little crowd there. And it's a good way of attracting new fans that maybe haven't seen it before. And if we're actually doing ticketed events in the same town later on in the year, you know, there's lots of positives to galas, but they can also be tough, tough shifts. I remember I worked quite a lot of them gala day shows for you, particularly in 2007. And the year before that, we'd actually done four for gala day as a way of, as you say, trying to attract new people that maybe hadn't come to the shows in Forfa before. That was the idea anyway, and it basically just pissed down the entire day. I've got a video online somewhere of me and Red Lightning sort of trying to work with pools of water gathering in the ring. Yeah, some of them ones for you as well. I remember particularly, I mean, you talk about the cordons around the ring and everything. I mean, they always did such a fabulous job of keeping these nutters away, but... um, there was one in a place called Kirk Liston, which I think is just outside Edinburgh somewhere, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, to start with, they were throwing all kinds of shit in the ring. You know, they were throwing full Coke cans and potatoes. And I mean, there were enough spuds being thrown in the ring as it was, but um, they <laughs> certainly added to the experience. And there was nobody stopping them doing whatever they liked, basically. And that was another occasion where... I don't think you were there that time. I think we had two galas that day, and you were maybe at the other one, where we pretty much had to say, look, either you get some control over this, or, you know, we can't put the show on. Because I was chucking all kinds of shit in the ring. and It's dangerous as well. It's yeah. legitimately dangerous. I mean, trying to take a bump in the ring, and you're landing on Christ knows what, cans of Coke and potatoes and things, you know. Where did they get potatoes? Christ only knows. Did they uh, bring them with the intention of throwing them at the ring? I would guess so, unless there was a winner jar of potatoes competition. You know, guess the weight of these potatoes, um, which I wouldn't be surprised, actually, with the quality of some of the other attractions at the gala days. That same gala, that one in Kirk Liston, by the time we went out for our match, it had been raining earlier, but the sun had come out by then, and we ended up absolutely sunburnt to fuck by the end of this tag match, which went about half an hour, because we had to fill it out, because for some reason we'd run short. But I think people had just refused to, you know, do anything more than a five-minute match with all the stuff being thrown in the ring. But, yeah, there was this weird kid at that particular show, just stood at the corner of the cordon, just monotone, expressionless, repeating again and again, let me see your boots. Can I see your boots? I want to see your boots. Let me see your boots. Can I see your boots? Just over and over again. Even when there was nobody near him, you know, we still heard him from the ring just standing there talking to people that weren't there going, can I see your boots? Let me see your boots. Absolutely bizarre. I think the most bizarre experience I had with one of them gala days was actually, I don't think you were there at this one either. It was Spring Grangemouth. And the gala day was set up in this absolutely enormous field, which I think was next door to a sports centre. And I don't know why to this day that they did it like this, but they had lots of different things on. But they spread them out all around this enormous field rather than having everything kind of together. 
So that meant that there was never like a crowd in one place at one time watching things. I'd had my match. I think I'd been on first. And there were two other guys in the ring. It was Liam Thompson and Falcon, I remember. And they're going through this match, flipping about, doing all these spectacular moves. I'm watching from the little changing pavilion that was, I don't know, about a five-minute walk away from the ring. And there's absolutely nobody watching. It was like one of them sort of bizarre dreams where, you know, nothing makes sense and you're just looking at this scene in front of you. And these guys just going along, having this great match, you know, flipping about, and there's absolutely nobody watching at all. It's like, what's the point? Yeah. I've got just coming to mind there two other gala day stories. One, when you were saying about the rain, and it's dangerous wrestling in the rain because the mat becomes so slippy. This was maybe three or four years ago, so I've got a bit of savvy about me by this point, and I was stressing to the team, look, we're going to wrestle because the rain's stopped, but that canvas is wet. No running spots. Do not hit the ropes. It's in our agreements that if, in the case of bad weather, the quality of the show and the time that the show's going to run for will be reduced and there'll be less risky moves, for example, high-flying moves. Because I've thought about that. You've got to think of the safety. Uh-huh. At least now you do. I don't think that was always the way in wrestling. So I'd stress to the guys, I don't want to see anybody climbing the ropes. I don't want to see anybody running the ropes. No running spots, guys. Work holds, work the crowd. Because there's a good little crowd there, but the canvas was sudden. You know, just try and entertain them. But it's not worth getting injured on this job. And I go out there wrestle. I can't remember who it was. And I'm feeding around, you know, taking a bit of heat. And I go to the corner and I'm expecting the guy to start punching away, throwing some kicks, what have you. He goes to post me. Now, we're a few minutes into the match, and we were a few matches in, and the canvas wasn't that bad. I'd been walking about in it, and it didn't seem that slippy. So instead of blocking it and being like, no, we're not doing that, I went with it. It was my fault. Going against my own advice, I took this corner posting. And when I got to the corner... My feet didn't stop. So so I literally crotched myself. I was confident enough on the canvas by that point, and I shouldn't have been. I took a normal corner posting. My back hit, my legs kept going. I ended up falling flat on my front and crotched myself into the post. I was furious, absolutely fuming with myself for doing it and with the other guy for setting it up. But it's my fault. Could have blocked it. Didn't have to run. A similar corner post story, my very first gala day was actually way back at the start of my wrestling adventures with Klondike Jake. And we did a gala day for him. I was in some sort of four-way, you know, four corners match or something. And one of the guys whipped me into the corner. And through sheer inexperience, I didn't tuck my chin. And this was one of those rings where the post was higher than the top rope. Right. So my head, when I hit the corner, flew back, cracked on the ring post that went higher than the top rope did and knocked myself out. Next thing I knew, I was back in the dressing room. (laughs) But that was scary. One minute I was wrestling or to the best of my abilities at the time, which wasn't very much. (laughs) And the next thing I knew, I was back in the dressing room. I think they just pinned me and somebody helped me back to the dressing room. It's okay though, because it's all bent. So it doesn't, you know... No, of course not. <laughs> and of course, I think we'll leave talking about the infamous gala day that ended with one of the wrestlers getting arrested for assault and you firing me and the person you'd put in charge of the event. 
That was one of only two times that you fired me, actually. I'm surprised, really, that it wasn't more than that. I don't know if you remember this, but we'd been having a drink after one of the shows at the Windsor Hotel the second time you fired me, when I was trying to convince a girl that you were on a promise with that night that you were still a virgin and lived with your auntie like Frank Spencer and you had to be home by a certain time. Yeah, remember that one well. Happy days. I've got lots of good memories of working for W3L in that time. I remember particularly there was a show in Kelty where me and Dave were doing the Bone Crushers tag team at the time. And this kid just randomly came up to the ring just before we started the match and chucked a curly whirly in the ring at me saying, here you go, fatty, I thought you might need this. Uh, <laughs> and I picked it up. I sort of contemplated eating it. But we were about to start the match and I thought, right, I'll just sling this out of the ring. So I slung it out in between the ropes. And I couldn't have aimed it any better if I'd tried because it absolutely sailed across the hall and hit this bloke's pint sitting at a table and like knocked it all over him. <laughs> Tremendous. And out of the corner of my eye, I see the bloke standing up, wringing wet from this beer that's just been spilled all over him, like wringing his clothes off and shouting some sort of obscenities to the ring at me and then trudging off to the bar like to try and get a towel to dry himself out and get another pint. And then I'd, I wish I'd done this now. I was going to throw the guys out of the ring and then take the match over to that table and like just knock his pint over again. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I wish I'd done that. One of the things I do remember actually is for a time, maybe sort of 2007, 2008, you had a film company from Glasgow coming in, filming little backstage promos and skits, etc., for your DVDs. Was there ever anybody that was sort of challenging to work with when you were trying to film things? I remember a shower scene. Ah, yes, the shower scene. I've got that all. I'll be looking at that. Oh, my God. Soon. (laughs) (laughs) W3LBoxOffice.com is where we've now put all our DVDs for digital download. And the plan is to start putting more of the old stuff out there. We've got hours and hours of footage, and a lot of it's been filmed from two angles. So the shows that we've got two angles from, that can be released as a premium, like, you know, buy a DVD or or buy the digital download. So the era that you're talking about, not only have we got two angles, they were shot with much more professional cameras as well. So the footage is really good. So this will surface at some point, Carl, we'll have to navigate the various takes that it took to film anything that involved yourself. There's Resolution that's already out on DVD and that's got you being interviewed where I think you found somebody with the last name of Inch to be like really funny because uh, he was introducing yeah. himself and um, you found humour in the name. That took a few takes. And then on that show, when your opponent sunset flips over you and ends up running away with your singlet, that's already out there on a DVD. But the shower scene, which has yet to be released... I think Damien Diamond was offering his services. That's right, yeah, looking for new clients. Yeah, and he approached you whilst you were taking a shower. I assume it was your idea to film it in the shower? Whatever makes you think that. I just don't think I would have scripted it that way. I would have been like, right, we're going to get Carl in a shower and we'll have Damien come in. And I just wouldn't have. I'd have just asked you guys to film it. And then when I looked at the footage, found that you chose to film it in a shower. I think he said, uh, you know, offer your services. And he said, you'd asked him, what sort of services do you offer? And that in itself with you in the shower becomes funny. So we have to retake it again. 
And then he said, well, it's, you know, me, like a body. Do you need any bodies to help? And you were like, when you say bodies, do you mean bodies, bodies? Because I'm not into necrophilia. And that was another take. (laughs) And then I seem to remember accepting his proposal and saying, well, yeah, I've never had a black man before. Yeah, that was on there as well. That was another one. It was a good job that the production team weren't paid to partake. Yeah, Um, I probably would have never had any wages if that was the case. Um, (laughs) It's amazing, really, that you employed me for as long as you did considering I spent probably about 90% of my time at your shows naked in some form or another. Did you tell the story about you in the shower? I seem to remember hearing you tell that story on one of your podcasts. Oh, no, that was a different time. This is putting me in a really good light, isn't it? A different time I was naked in front of lots of people. You Um, didn't realise that across the pool there was a glass window? That's right, Um, yeah. On that same show, I think it was that same show, there's one where me and Drew Galloway are in the ring taking yes. Polaroids. And I've got this on tape as well. You see, me notice it first. There was a low turnout. The hole had been cut off by a curtain. And the curtain was open about five feet to allow for us to walk through the middle of it. And there's a crowd on that side, but they're facing away from the curtain. I think the camera was at the same side you were standing at. Right. You don't see you standing there. But you do see our reaction. But anyway, you see on the camera that John's introducing the Polaroids and it was me and Drew. And you see me suddenly cover my face and like put my head in my hands. And then you see me walk over to Drew and whisper to Drew, look at the curtain. And then you see Drew cover his face and start laughing. And then John's like, it will make a great Christmas card for only five pounds. You know, his usual thing that he says for Polaroids. And you see Drew whisper to John and John takes a look and he's like, oh, and uh, stumbles over his words and then continues <laughs> on. But that moment is caught on camera of the three of us noticing you standing there, <laughs> I think covering your modesty with your hands. You seem to like undressing in appropriate times. I remember another promoter that, I know he was named in some of the recent things that were going on, so I won't say his name, but it was his first show and he was very, very stressed about the first show and he was taking things super seriously. And he was in the lobby and all the punters were starting to queue up to get in and he's very stressed and everything's very serious and he wants to make sure everything runs smoothly. And you walk out in a towel and you say, mate, do you know where the showers are? (laughs) He was like, I'll get back in there. The crowd are coming in. Lots of of good memories. (laughs) Yeah, I do remember that. But he was a cunt anyway, so fuck him. Anyway, moving on from there. As I said before, I've got lots of good memories of working for W3L in that time. I remember showing Penny Cookie. It was me and Liam against Wolfgang and Darkseid on this one particular show. And in the dressing room beforehand, they'd been coming up with all these spectacular moves, you know, with the silly names like, I don't know... The spinning... Cartwheel, Thunderflop. Yeah, that sort of stuff. So I've got Barry against the ropes. Send him in. And as he's going off, I go, countdown conundrum. And you can hear him go, what? And he's almost sort of like stopped running into the ropes because he's going, what? But he comes back and I just hit him with a clothesline. He takes a bump and I turn to Darkseid in the corner and just go, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) I always sort of forget which halls were which with your shows. Because there were so many little places just dotted about Edinburgh and Fife. I find it hard sometimes to separate one from another. There was one place we went to where some of us went out into the town beforehand. 
and we ended up in this pub because we saw the name of the pub and we just couldn't not go in. The pub was called The Black Bitch. And, you know, we were just thinking, how can you get away with calling a pub yeah. The Black Bitch in 2007 sort of thing? And just because of the name of that pub, I can tell you we were in Lundlesco. Right. Um, because we we run we didn't run on Lesco for years, but we run it again now, and um, you don't forget that name, do you? Oh, no. <laughs> when I posted it last year or whatever, every time I see the name of that pub, I'm like, what a name! <laughs> but we went in there, and some old geezer kidnapped butcher Scott Remwick, just kidnapped him for about half an hour to give him a history lesson on the origins of the pub name and everything. And he's like doing his best to try and be polite and stuff, but the rest of us just sort of got on with it and <laughs> just left him to it. Oh, that was where they had that quiz machine. You know, these old fashioned quiz machines where it's basically like a telly and you can't win any prizes or anything. It's like a picture quiz and you put your pound coin in and you don't win anything. It's just For the 80s. entertainment of doing it. Yeah. Well, I had one of them in there. And the first question is it's a picture of these horses. You've got to press a button and it says, how many horses appeared in the picture you just saw? And it was Colin and he presses three. And we're all going, there were four horses. And it comes up, you know, the answer's four. He's going, fuck off. One of them was a pony. (laughs) It's just. just... He thought it was a trick question. Yeah. Colin was a trick question in himself. (laughs) Your show again, actually, I think it was in Dalgetty Bay. I'm on with Colin, I think it was the first match. I bet you me for that. The match went about four minutes. And it's actually the best match with Colin I've ever had, because it went four minutes, three of which was crowd work. So he gets out of the ring, and this kid's got a sign in the front row that's saying, you are gay. So Colin's in the front row, holding up this sign at me, getting the whole crowd to chant, you are gay, at me, which was bizarre. You couldn't get away with that now, though, either. You're probably <laughs> talking 10 or 13 years ago, and now yeah. that would be, like, one of the tag teams wore pink in their gear a few years ago, and I was like, you know, I don't know what you pair's game is. You know, I know that you give each other the pre-match massage in the back to get yourselves ready. <laughs> and even that, me saying that, was enough to be like, well, we're not supposed to laugh at that. You have got to be so careful, because exactly what you just said, the you are gay thing was totally acceptable those years ago. And I understand why it isn't. You know, you've got to move with the times. I did get in trouble once down in CSF in Melksham. I was on with Stu Nat, and I used to do this spiel beforehand where I'd say, this is my arena, this is my ring, etc., etc. And then when he came in, I got the mic again, and I said, I said before you came out here that this was my arena, this is my ring. And I can tell just by looking at you, this isn't the first time you've been inside another man's ring. <laughs> and I did get in a bit of trouble for that one. Oh, for goodness sake. We did the handhead crotch uh-huh. routine with a guy that had a flamboyant character. And I just want to say, I've got no problem with that. I think everybody should be whatever they want to be into, whether it's men, women. I've got friends that are gay and from all different kind of walks of life sexual persuasions i don't judge anybody people can be and do whatever they want we did hand head crotch with him i should probably explain what that spot is you know the stamp on the hand and you're like oh kiss my hand better kiss my hand better then you get smacked in the head oh kiss my forehead better and then you go to get in the ring and they kick the middle rope and you sell your crotch and walk towards that same person that you've just involved in that bit 
And usually you pick like a mum or a granny or somebody to do it with. He picked a bloke to do it instead of a woman. But the problem was when he went for the crotch spot at the end where the punter's supposed to be like, oh, no, no, I'm not. This guy walks over to this man, like pointing at his crotch, selling his crotch. The bloke kissed his crotch. (laughs) I was standing in the ring and I'm like, I don't know where we go from here. I've done that spot plenty of times, and that's never happened. You just invite the guy up into the ring to do the rowing boat spot. Yeah, <laughs> as long as we do see do first, and then we're all good. <laughs> I remember a time that you and me were on together in Loch Gelly. The match was finished. I think you'd gone over, and the match was finished. And I'd rolled out the ring. I'm sort of still giving you back chat, back in away sort of thing. And I was back in away, and... I thought I was right by, you know, you've got the door that leads into the corridor and goes back up to the dressing rooms. Yeah. I thought I was right by there. So I turn around to open the door, open the door, and there's this, it's just like a gymnastics equipment store. (laughs) You can go and walk into a cupboard. Yeah, basically. And I just thought, oh, shit, where do I go now? So I just had to sort of play into it, you know, say, oh, you know, and sort of storm off back down the hall sort of thing. But I thought, (laughs) how did I end up here? I remember whilst working for me, you came up with one of my favourite finishes of all time. Do you know which one I'm talking about? I know my favourite finish that I came up with was the spot where I got locked outside the the building. Yeah, we call it the fire exit finish. (laughs) Do you want to explain the premise behind that? And then I'll tell you when that went a bit wrong when we tried to recreate it one time. Well, the first time I did it was actually working on another show in Glasgow um, in a little working man's club. And I always used to love working in those little kind of different alternative venues because you could experiment and do things that you couldn't do in a bigger hall. So it gave you the opportunity to be a bit creative. And that's what happened on this particular show. It was me and Red Lightning working. And we'd sort of come up with this plan during the day of, okay, what can we do for a finish? And I sort of look around and I thought, oh, okay. And they got the fire exit doors where, you know, it's got the bar on it and you snap it back into place when you close it. I thought, what about if you're just messing with me and you get me to the point of such anger that I take my singlet down, take the straps down, go to fight you sort of thing but I'm so angry I don't just want to fight you in the ring or outside the ring you know I offer you out and we go out the doors I go right outside then you shut the doors and I get counted out whilst I'm over at the window going you know what are you doing sort of thing so we did that we did the count out finish he slams the doors behind me gets back in the ring referee counts me out of the building while I'm you know and then later on, I came back in and said, what do you mean I've been counted out? You know, when some other match was going on. Like halfway through the next match, yeah. yeah. Hilarious stuff. That's the gist of it. But I actually did a variation on that the following night as well. because the reverse fire exit finish. No, that came later on. I was travelling overnight down to work for CSF in Melksham and got down there and I was sort of buzzing from what we'd done the previous night. You know, it went over great. People loved it. I said to Natty when I first got in the like the door, I said, we did this finish last night, you know, and he said, right, you're doing that again tonight, but this time you're getting locked in a cupboard. And basically we did the thing again where I get embarrassed and I take the strap down off of the person to fight. And this time we go over, we can't go out the main doors because they can't be locked. 
So we go over, we explain it. We thought this was like a back door to the building. And it actually sort of leads into this cupboard where I get locked in when I can't get back out. I get counted out again that way. But after that, a couple of years later, you ran a little place called Dander Hall. Yes. And same kind of setup. You know, it's got the fire doors. It's like a little working man's club. And said, why don't we do it again? This was a tag match this time. We did the finish. We offered them out, got locked outside, got counted out. And the next time we went back there, that's when we did the reverse of that. We offered them out. We got them to step outside first. We shut the doors on them, got back in the ring. And then as the referee's counting, they've run all the way around the other side of the building, sneaked in the other entrance, got in the ring. And just as the referee's getting to like eight or nine, they both roll us up. And, you know, that's the end of the match sort of thing. I didn't know about it having been done since then. Oh, that's worth stealing, Carl. I wasn't going to forget the fire exit finish. You don't often have opportunities to use it because it has to be a certain setup in the venue. Just every now and again, I'll remember it and I'll notice a fire exit in a window <laughs> and I'll be like, mm, I think we need to do the fire exit finish tonight. I've maybe only done it a handful of two, three, four times at the very most. But yes, that idea has been lovingly uh, replicated, <laughs> Carl. Plagiarised. Um, yes. So we're in Wick, and this hall had two fire exits in the hall and windows surrounding one side. We're in a six-man tag team match, and we are brawling on the outside. Now, at one point, somebody gets thrown into one of the fire exits, which pops it open. And we had a runner there to ensure that nobody closed it, because we Uh needed that door open. That was our end game. So then we go to the back and um, we end up sort of brawling towards the next set of fire exit doors. With the way it was set up, we didn't do the challenge. That's the best way to do it, no question. I love the original concept and that's the one that every other time I've stolen. It's it's worked perfectly. (laughs) But this time we ended up that we're in this big brawl and somehow the baby faces end up out. The heels manage to get back in and slam these doors shut and they all run back to the ring and they tell the referee to start counting. And obviously the heels have forgotten that the other fire exit doors open and that's where the three of us come back in and we do a triple roll up, one, two, three. Again, when the referee gets to about eight or nine. But one person who's actually a really talented performer and was then, it was just, I don't know if he fully understood what we were supposed to be doing. He's running back to the ring with the other heels. You know, the plan is they're going to be like, right, referee, start counting them out. But then he stops, turns around, looks at the open fire exit and goes to close it. Oh. <laughs> so, um, you know, luckily we were already there and I just saw a hand grabbing the handle. So I have to like barge myself in to stop him shutting the door. So the whole thing meant nothing at this point because we're just brawling again after coming in the other fire exit. We had to improvise a finish. But <laughs> we almost ended up counted out because had that door shut, there is no way we would have made it. It was a long trip back round to the front of the door. We would not have been beating that count. Serves me right for stealing your idea, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good fun. I remember one particular show of yours, and you weren't actually there. You missed all the chaos. It was a little sports centre that you used to run somewhere in Edinburgh, and it had a playing field outside of it. 
I think it may even have been attached to a school. I'm not quite sure. We'd driven the van onto the field to get the ring loaded in. And it had been raining. And the van had got stuck in the mud and just wasn't moving at all. And there were loads and loads of guys just sort of like trying to push the van out of the mud. Um, Ewan knackered his car trying to pull the van with like the ratchet straps from the ring. He knackered something on his car trying to pull the van. And we eventually managed to get it sorted. You turn up to the hall. Like, we're late getting the ringing because we've spent literally hours trying to get, like, get the ring in. And you turn up and we're all absolutely caked in mud. I don't know if you remember this at all. Everybody there is absolutely caked in mud. You'd been out in Edinburgh trying to get Polaroids for the cameras. And it's like a scene from a zombie apocalypse. You know, everybody's absolutely caked in mud. It was absolute chaos. And you just turn up completely nonplus, going, well, what's going on here? That's happened a few times with vans over the years. The worst is on the gala days, if it's been raining or what have oh, you. Yeah. I've got a few memories of us needing to get towed out of different places. Yeah, I think eventually, to get it moving, we found some wood from somewhere and hammered it underneath the wheels. And yeah. just finally got it moving that way. But yeah, Ewan's car was a write-off. We're all absolutely caked in mud, and you just turn up like, oh, what's been going on here? Why is the ring not up? <laughs> <laughs> but that was also the night where we were in a rush to get out at the end, and Colin moved the ring when it wasn't supposed to be moved and accidentally damaged the floor in the hall. Yeah, the feeling that was the same night. Yeah, we weren't back there after that incident. Yeah. That was that. We ended up with some much better venues in Edinburgh anyway. But yeah, that one was all right until we um, fucked the floor. Well, I say we, Colin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's the only time we've damaged the floor, though. It's not the only time Colin's damaged the floor, though. He damaged the floor at his second show. He hadn't put mats underneath the ring posts and ended up scraping away a load of the flooring in the sports centre. You know, you thought he would have learnt, but never mind. Quote of the week! I say! Yes, it's Quote of the Week. And this week's Quote of the Week is... He's a nice man. Bobby Duval is a name I've mentioned briefly a couple of times in previous episodes, but not really gone into any depth on so far. Bobby was a wrestler, allegedly. And a promoter, again, allegedly. He basically put on the absolute worst shows around featuring a mixture of his own terribly trained um, wrestlers and us few unlucky, hearty souls who were brave or perhaps stupid enough to work for him. All in front of crowds, well, audiences, of a handful of people who were mostly related to him. There are lots and lots of tales to share from Bobby's shows and I'll be telling some of those stories in detail on future episodes along with my guests on those shows. For now, Mike and I go over a few little highlights from some of our experiences with Bobby, including the time that one of his highly esteemed officials clearly forgot to brush up on his referee's manual before the show. Enjoy. What are your memories of Bobby Duval? Um, wow. Where to start? 
sometimes in wrestling you come across these people and you're just like why how (laughs) what about wrestling attracts these types of people right so bobby deval was from the traveling community you couldn't understand a word he said he wrestled in joggy bottoms well i use the word wrestled um oh my god if you were to encapsulate the word rotten in a wrestler, it would probably be Bobby DeVal. I've got a few stories. Should I just fire on? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> By this point, I'd already become fed up with Bobby. It was tiresome. You know, he would have these rings that were falling apart and you couldn't understand a word he said. And he would have all these, he would train these people, supposedly, that were just terrible. And it was just, oh, God. It was depressing to be around him. Uh-huh. But, you know, there's something called straw tax that you can add to your price when dealing with people like that. I'll not go any further on that. I'll just leave that comment there. So there was sometimes a financial interest in doing the odd job. So I would tolerate him. Like, I think everybody was in the same position with Bobby, uh-huh. that it was like, he's going to pay me, but oh my God. So uh, I remember getting a phone call from him. In fact, every time I got a phone call from him, he would begin by saying, Mike, Mike, it's Bobby. Is that you, Mike? And he would constantly ask, is that you, Mike? Is that you? Is that you, Mike? It's Bobby, Bobby Daval. And I'm probably speaking clearer than Bobby would say. And it's Christmas Day and my phone rings. And I saw the nut. I was like, what on earth could he want? So I think morbid curiosity got the best of me. And I answered the phone and he said, oh, Mike, Mike, is that you, Mike? Yes, yes, Bobby, it's me, Bobby. It's, it's Robert, Robert Duval. And I was like, yeah, I know it's you, Bobby, yeah. Well, yeah, well, you're asshole for me, well, you're asshole on my show. And I said, Bobby, it's Christmas Day. It is Christmas Day. When is the show? He's like, I, I, I don't have a date for it yet, Mike. I just wanted to know if you'd do it. <laughs> Are you serious? I said, Bobby, it's Christmas Day. Phone me back when you've actually got a date and I'll tell you if I'm available. And he was like, all right, Mike, fair enough. Like, you'd get it if that was a joke. If he was like, I'm going to phone Mike up and ask him if he'll do a show. I don't have a date for it, but it'll be funny to just waste his time because it's Christmas. I'm confident that wasn't part of what happened. Mm-hmm. It was just, that was normal to Bobby to do that. Did you ever wrestle him, Carl? Yes, unfortunately I did. What was that like for you? Oh, it's tremendous, yeah. I've, I've got nothing but good memories. I mean, um, it was like wading through treacle, basically. If you can imagine this scenario, and funnily enough, this was the last time I worked for him, because after this I just said, enough's enough, you know, I don't need the money that badly. It just got so depressing. If you can imagine as a scenario, you're wrestling a singles match with Bobby Duval. You've not even got a tag where you can... Although we did do a tag later on. You got to Uh, wrestle him twice in one night. I know. Lucky. Yeah, I've had lots of good breaks in my wrestling career, but nothing quite as good as that. Yeah, if you can imagine, you know, you're on with Bobby Duval, and refereeing the match is Dave Kidney. And you're just in there thinking, what the fuck am I doing here? I just tried to keep him grounded, basically, because I knew he couldn't do anything. So I've got him on the mat, and I'm just putting various holds on him. Just basically, like, okay, this is an armbar. This is a chin lock. Just to keep him there so he wouldn't actually fuck anything up. 
And I've got Dave Kidney there talking to me. Oh, that's a nice hold. Oh, yes, that's a nice hold. Oh, I like that one. And all that. What the? <laughs> Just fucking get me out of here, honestly. And in the tag match later on, someone who I also want to move on to talking about after Bobby Duval, Jungle George was the referee. <sighs> And I'd just basically spent the whole match taking the piss out of him. I'd cover whoever it was, two count, and he'd go two, and I'd go three, and he'd go two, three, two, three. And this would still be going on two minutes later when I've tagged out and I'm just standing on the apron waiting for coming back in again. And <laughs> he's still in the corner with me going two, three, two, three, just for about five minutes of course, you know, I have to take the fall at the end. I get pinned by Bobby. One, two, three. And then after the match is over, I'm going two. And he's going three, two, three, two, three. And it's the other way around. But um, yeah, fun days. And that was the show, actually. It was in a tiny little place called New Tile, which was in between where we used to live in Aleph, which was out in the middle of nowhere, and Dundee another little village in the middle of nowhere and it's just in this village hall and there's i don't know maybe 15 people there or whatever and there's a guy i'm watching and they come out of the ring from their match and one of them the one that's lost has come down and he's gone banging along the corridor towards the well i say dressing room kitchen he comes banging along the corridor fucking 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 fuck slams the door like kicks the door and and I'm looking there going, okay, wonder what's going on there. Later found out it was because he'd lost. And you're there thinking, what the fuck am I doing here? Yet again, what the fuck am I doing here with these fucking mongs? Yeah, he'd lost the match. And he genuinely, not working, he genuinely just gone along the corridor, banging everything and like kicking doors and shouting obscenities because he'd lost. He'd had to lose. Was he trying to win? Fuck knows, frankly. (laughs) That's the point, that there's just... These people were mental. Proper mental. I'm not allowed to say that, am I? (laughs) I just said mongs. I think you're in the clear. (laughs) (laughs) But how do these people get into a position? To be quite honest, Carl, it's fraud because they're selling tickets to the general public to come out and see them fall around a ring. In their jogging bottoms, and I had to wrestle Bobby at his own show, obviously. Well, of course, at his own show. <laughs> I don't know why I added that in. He asked me to provide a ring hire and a bunch of guys, so obviously I gave him a full price, and he phoned me up a couple of days before the show, and he's like, Mike, is that you, Mike? Yes, Bobby, it's me. Are you still good for the ring? Yes, Bobby. Could you bring some music for the wrestlers? Because I, I don't have any music. I thought, this is a gift. <laughs> so I brought a CD with the most ridiculous music that I could think of. A lot of it was old school WWF music. Somebody came out to Honky Tonk Man's music. I sent Bobby out to the Bushwhackers theme. Can't remember what else was on it. Girls in Cars or something was on there. It was all like some of my favourite cheesy themes from the 80s. Bobby came out. We had this match and it was dreadful. Um, no. You know the, um, in fact, this is Carl Conroy 101, the nerve hold spot. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know the one, I mean, duck, double duck. I tried to do that with Bobby. Yeah, see, I and, didn't um, even bother. 
I just put the nerve hold on and kept him on the mat. And whenever he tried to get up, I just put him back down again. I thought it was simple enough. First time duck once, second time duck twice. So I thought, I'll throw that in. That was the only spot. That was basically the only spot of the whole match that was, we'll do this to get into the simple finish. I can't even remember what the finish was. But I think the finish ended with Bobby's trousers around his ankles, um, which I'm swearing I had nothing to do with. It was purely an accident, which was quite embarrassing for him, given the crowd was like 75% made up. Well, I say the crowd, the small gathering of people was pretty much the same small gathering he would have probably had around his caravan at Christmas time. It was his family. <laughs> Poor Bobby ends up with his trousers down his ankles. But I was having to like push his head to get him to duck. <laughs> but because it was only in front of his family, I wasn't really bothered. You know, I didn't feel like I was ripping off the public. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have had a choice in the matter if the public had paid to see it. I mean, perhaps the comedy of me trying to drag him through something was better than not doing anything at all. I don't know. It was a lose-lose situation, but I was actually bopping him on the head to force him to duck through things. And it was just, (laughs) but you did, you felt miserable afterwards. So it was Uh this horrible match. And uh, we got back and he was like, a great match, mate, great match. How can he not know that that was awful? That was terrible. Oh, dearie me. Well, I remember doing a show for him. I said to him, look, I'll put you a carload of people together for this show that he wanted me for. And I basically just got him to pay the exes for me to bring up a carload for me doing a show the next day. But he didn't need to know that. Straw tax. Yeah. <laughs> we went up and we're in Buckhaven Community Centre, the infamous Buckhaven Community Centre, run by everybody within a 20-mile radius. And we were late getting there because on the way up, the tyre had blown and we'd had to stop to fix that. And um, lots of shenanigans that I'll talk about on another episode of the podcast all around that. But we were running really, really late. And then when we got to Buckhaven, we're trying in vain to find the hall. And this was an ongoing saga every time we went there. We said to tell him to put us on later in the show because we're only going to be getting there at the time that the doors are opening. Or at the time that the show was actually starting, I forget which. But we get there, we get in the tiny little dressing room. It wasn't the bigger dressing room down behind the stage. It was a tiny little room over the other side of the building. We all cram into there. And we heard the MC start up and start to introduce the first match. From the depths of hell, the mysterious and dark Dr. Death. And he's standing there, he's got his mask on, he's got full-length black gear covering himself up. And it's Bobby. There's probably nobody else in the world that looks like that. Outside of Fife, anyway. And this music starts up. You take the high road and I'll take the low. (laughs) (laughs) And he sort of waddles out. Yeah, and he he sort of waddles out like the the evil Dr. Death. You take the high road and I'll... And you knew, you just knew it wasn't a rib. He'd actually selected that music, you know. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing much went through his head. The time that I told you about when I wrestled him, he actually ran away without paying me in full at the end. We heard he was leaving and we were waiting for him to come back from the cash machine or something. Somebody else had gone to get cash and I'd said, right, Bobby's got to stay here. We lost him and we ran out the back 
and his whole family were jump starting the car, like pushing the car along. And Bobby's like, we got out. Sticking the granny in the rocking chair on the roof. Yeah. Just as the car was going and they ran in, they all piled in after pushing it to make their escape. And like our fingertips just scratched the car as it pulled off. And that was the last time I ever saw him. I can't remember how much he did us out of it, but it was spread across the team. I didn't see him ever again. But years later, it was probably about five years ago now, maybe six or seven, there was a flyering session going on at a circus of all places. We were going to be in the same area, so we kind of positioned ourselves where all the public were coming out of the circus to hand them flyers for our upcoming show. Mm-hmm. And this man stood in front of me and was like, it's a wrestling show. And just from the voice, it wasn't him, but from the voice, immediately I thought of Bobby. And I was like, yep, yep, it's a wrestling show. It's coming up next week, you know, wherever it was. And he went, oh, my cousin used to do the wrestling. And I was like, okay, yeah, who's your cousin? Maybe I know him. His name's Robert, Robert Duval. And I was like, oh, right, okay, I've had many good matches with Robert over the years. How's he doing? Is he doing all right? You know, patronising as hell. And he went, well, he's not wrestling anymore. He's had a stroke, which explained to me why Bobby had disappeared. Have you heard how he is now, Carl? I haven't heard how he is now, but I can sort of follow up on that. It may be a different time, actually, so maybe not. As you know, I used to live in Perth. And just as we were moving from Perth to come back down here to Birmingham, Bobby Duval actually moved to Perth. So I think we got out just at the right time. We didn't hear it on the grapevine. We could smell him. But um, I forget who it was that told me. But they said that they'd seen Bobby around somewhere. And they'd been talking to him. And he said, oh, you know, I've just made this coffin. I've made this coffin because I'm running a show. And I'm going to have like a, a coffin match as a main event. And I said, all right, OK. you know." And the next they heard of Bobby, they saw somebody from his family or somebody and I said, oh, did he do that show? Uh, oh, oh, no, uh, he, he, uh, he had a heart attack and uh, we, 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 we thought we were going to have to use the coffin like to, to, to bury him in. Like, um... <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> but, yeah, God. Well, yeah, I've got an update. And obviously I wouldn't wish this on anybody, but apparently he lost both his legs. Oh. Sorry, um, I didn't mean to sound quite so gleeful with that. <laughs> He owes me money, but, you know, I wouldn't wish the loss of limbs on him for that. And he did stink up many wrestling shows that he was on. And many buildings. Yeah, and losing his legs doesn't change that. But, yeah, unfortunately, apparently he's in a wheelchair without either legs, or so I've heard anyway. I've not seen it with my own eyes. But, again, I've heard from various people that they have seen him, and um, that's the condition he's in. So it's safe to say I don't think he'll be wrestling anymore. To be honest, he probably wouldn't do a much worse job. No, probably not. I remember seeing him years ago. He was sort of a cult obsession of mine until I actually met him. Because I remember seeing a video of him, Mad Eli's Video Club, one of them videos. And it was this show in Cardiff in a place called Splot, an area of Cardiff called Splot. And there's him and a guy he's on with, like a really, really thin guy in a full black bodysuit and mask called Black Douglas. And... They're going along having this match. Black Douglas has got this valet on the outside called Lady Vile. And she's basically doing nothing out there. 
she's just standing about. Black Douglas is obviously the villain. He's got this manageress with him. And she's done absolutely nothing. And for no reason at all, Bobby Duval, the blue eye, just jumps out the ring randomly, goes and grabs this manageress, starts shaking her about by the hair, slams her into a chair, <laughs> and then gets in the ring and like trying to get the crowd to clap after him. It was just bizarre. For years, I wondered, like, who is this guy? Um, and you wished you never found out. Yeah. <laughs> I do have to say one thing in his defence. He's a nice man. <laughs> what was that story again? He'd phoned me and told he, me that he'd just spoken to Bruce Hart. Yeah. Right? And that was... But that's, that's another one. You're just like, what the <laughs> fuck is going on? He phoned me and he said, um, he said, Mike, is that you, Mike? Yes, Bobby, it's me. He's like, I've just, I've just been on the phone to Bruce Hart. And I was like, yeah, he's a nice man. <laughs> yeah, anything else, Bobby? And he was like, I'm just telling you about being on the phone to Bruce. He's a nice man. Okay, see you next time. Bye. And that's it. And it's just like, oh, what is my life becoming? It's like your toddler coming up to you and saying, look what I did. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what would would Bruce Hart would have even been able to understand him if he phoned up? Like, if he somehow got his number and phoned him up? How is that conversation? I didn't think about this side of it at the time. How would that conversation <laughs> have gone? Bruce, is that you, Bruce? It's like, Bobby. Hello? Bob- Hello? Bobby, Bruce. Bobby. Robert Duval, a wrestler from Scotland. He wouldn't have been able to understand a word the man said. It's just the fact that he calls you sort of isolated from anything else. You know, you think the next part of the conversation is going to be... I'm going to be working with Bruce Hart on this or this or this, and here's how it relates to you. But no, it's just, I've spoken to Bruce Hart. What do you think? Yeah, you just wanted to tell me. I'm having pizza for teeth now. Just thought you should know. I remember another show for Bobby. Alan Grogan and Sean Harkin were having a match. And the referee, as per usual with Bobby's shows, was a complete duffer. He just hadn't got a clue. So they're going along and having the match. Alan's got Sean in a sleeper hold. And he goes to the referee. Ref, check the arm, check the arm. And the referee comes down, looks and says, No, it's not a chalk, it's legal, wrestle on. And Alan goes, No, check the arm. So the guy comes down again. And this time he starts trying to move Alan's arm instead of Sean's. Getting ever more frustrated, Alan then goes, Check his arm, referee. Check his arm. So the ref comes back down again, and this time kind of does what he's supposed to, and picks up Sean's arm. But then, keeping hold of it, he just starts waving Sean's hand around, like he's forcing Sean to wank off an invisible man or something, and then just places it gently back down by his side. Hitting his breaking point, Alan then instructed the feckless official Referee, pick up his arm. Let go of it and let it drop. If this happens three times, I am the winner. You should know this from your referee's manual. And eventually they kind of got to the finish line. (laughs) Am I remembering it wrong that the start of the story that you were just saying, Alan was already worried about the referee? because he didn't seem the sharpest knife in the drawer. So he checked with Bobby, he said, uh, 
as the referee experienced as he refereed before. And um, Bobby's like, I'll be all right. He'll be all right, Alan. <laughs> Alan's like, but does he know? Does he know it's a work? Yeah. Bobby's like, oh, what, do, what do you mean now in a work? He's, he's working as the referee. <laughs> no, he, like, does he know the match is a work? That's what's it. Does he know it's a work? <laughs> I don't know what you mean, Alan. I don't know what you mean. Oh. Predetermined. Uh, pre, uh, he's, he's the referee. <laughs> fake, Bobby. Does he know it's fake? <laughs> I'll tell him, Alan. I'll tell him. Yes, I do remember this now, yeah. <laughs> Two minutes before they go on. I'll tell him. <laughs> oh, and this is why I miss wrestling. I think it was that same show where the referee comes over to me in the corner before the match and sticks his hands out like he's going to check me. And for some reason at that moment, it just entered into my brain to shout... Yo! And give him a big double low five as hard as I could. And then stick my hands out for him to give me one back. And he actually did it. Despite me probably nearly breaking his wrists. Ah, happy days. I remember turning up at his shows and he had these absolutely huge posters. Of course, you know, as a promoter, posters are a massively important part of advertising your show. You know, you get the most important thing, wrestling. That catches people's attention, the flashy images and everything. You've got the details on there. His posters were sort of old school in a way because they had wrestling. The Scottish tour continues. Pictures of the wrestlers, but then no venue information, no date, just absolutely nothing. These enormous posters, I don't know what size they would have been. A0 or A1 sort of size. And just wrestling. The Scottish tour continues. No details at all. Was this plan to write in the details? Christ only knows. But, I mean, this was when we turned up at a show for him, so... Oh, God. I've no idea. I mean, there could be a reason that the entire crowd was just sort of his family. I don't know. I've made mistakes on a poster before and then had to do a rerun to fix it because it's that important that the correct details are on it. Uh-huh. You can't mess about with that. Where is the show? That's the basics. Talking of posters, that reminds me of a story. There was one I saw in Kirkcaldy that I'm sure I took a picture of and has been shared. And it was a Mercian instead of American. <laughs> a Mercian rest tiling. <laughs> Basics. You couldn't even spell the name of your product right. And I'm not making fun of somebody for not being able to spell. I'm making fun of somebody for not being able to recognise that as a result of that, they should have checked before uh-huh. putting it out. If you can't spell... You know you can't spell. Get someone that can. <laughs> yes, yes. And that's why it's OK to take the piss out of it. Because it should never have ended up on a poster, a mercy and rest tiling. And they couldn't even spell their name right. Jingle George or something like that. Is. Again, just... oh. And that's not even mentioning the uh, eroctic wrestling. Or the eroctic subdivision of that promotion. (laughs) Let's get on to it then. George Shearer and Jungle George. Do you know, he turned up every four years for at least 16 years or something like that. It was about for a year or a year and a half or whatever at first. 
and then he disappeared. But every sort of three or four years, he would come back for a week of training. I remember a story that one of the wrestlers was in the back of a van with him, and they were driving through to a show, and they all broke out a loaf of bread and just started passing the bread around during the trip, and it was just perfectly normal for them. Very odd. <laughs> I think you were on that infamous show at Buckhaven Community Centre that he ran. Yes. <laughs> the dressing rooms were full, and I mean full of people. There was something like 10 matches or whatever it was. Plenty of tag matches as well in amongst that. And he's come to me and he's got very limited music available. I think he's just got this one CD with a couple of tracks on it. And he's going, what music do you want to go out to? Bearing in mind, I mean, in reality, I'm half Scottish. In terms of wrestling, I'm one of only two English wrestlers on the show. And he's saying, oh, what music should I give you? Do you want to go out to bagpipes? I just thought, fuck it, why not? You know, this isn't going to be... fucking course you don't want to come out the bad parts. What a stupid question. But as he said it, I just said, you know what, fuck it. Yeah, let's come out to bagpipes. Let's do this. I'm a villain. These bagpipes are playing in the middle of Scotland. And I've just come out and gone, Mc yes! <laughs> and, um, and basically just had a piss about. He's asking me beforehand, you know, okay, who should win this match and who should win this match? And I said, well, who's the heel in this match and who's the heel in that match and who's, you know, and this and that. And he's going, well, I've got T2K and I've got like, and this and that, and, that, and they're on with these. Right. Who's the villain in this match? Yeah. And I've got Alan on and he's on with, right. Stop and listen for just a second. Who is the villain in this match? Yeah. And I've got you on with Red Lightning and I've got... Who is the villain in this match? Well, who do you think should win? Oh, for fuck's sake. Uh, and what could have been a 30-second conversation takes 10 minutes. And it's just... And me and Andy, Red Lightning, are in there doing the match. And by this point, there's more people that have already been on and had their match sitting at the back of the hall in the corner, just watching the show, than there are actual punters there. We're doing a little bit at the start of the match, and I'm having some banter. I forget who the referee was. It might have been Pedro, actually, Pete. And he's giving me some grief, and I'm going, I, I don't give a toss. What? And then I stop and I go, um, am I allowed to say toss here? And Andy just goes over to the ropes and says, hold on, I'll ask. And he shouts across to George, who's by the stage, and he goes, George, is Carl allowed to say toss? And we just had a complete piss about. By the end of the night, I mean, the main event is Jungle George, obviously. And they're having this complete slop fest of a match, like tables and Christ knows what else. And by this stage, I think just about everybody from the dressing room sat at the back of the hall, just taking a piss, obviously. The few real punters have long since departed because the show went on for something like four hours or something like that. So the real punters have headed for the hills where they live years ago basically <laughs> and at the end of the show after the main event we're just there in the corner going thank you george thank you george for about five minutes it was just an absolute piss take from start to finish they're totally unaware of it aren't they uh-huh that's the thing i mean i always had that sort of internal debate with myself as to I mean you mentioned it earlier you know should I actually do this I know I'm getting paid for it but should I actually do this because in effect you know us being there sort of legitimizes them yes yeah 
so there's always that sort of give and take there you know then you're never quite sure which side of the fence to fall on if you didn't do it somebody else would yeah this is the thing and this is what always won out if you didn't get it somebody else would so what can you do it's the problem with wrestling being what it is it's impossible to regulate it like people yeah. are talking about regulating wrestling now it's impossible it's never going to happen like obviously some things maybe shouldn't be happening in this day and age but to fully regulate it and set standards and requirements and have committees and it's never going to work it's nigh on impossible without everybody within it working together which will not happen no because everybody wants to put their friends at the top and uh-huh. and everybody wants to use a position of power to push their friends into positions and to make sure that anybody that's crossed them doesn't get opportunities and that's kind of human nature i suppose but mm-hmm. because wrestling is something that you can't measure success it's very subjective you know it's you're in a position because a promoter has put you in that position or chooses to put you in that position and then you're either talented enough to pull that off or not it's impossible to ensure that everything's done fairly because it's subjective choice as to who you're promoting and what you're doing i don't think it'll ever work and people are wasting their time talking about it to that degree now you're better off tackling the actual serious issues uh-huh. and not having this idea that there's going to be some wrestling grand committee utopia that we can all work under. Never going to happen. No, it is completely unrealistic. So that was Quote of the Week for this week. And as we approach the end of another show, it's now time for our final feature. Song of the Yes, it's Song of the Week, and this week's Song of the Week is the music I selected for Mike to use as a blue eye on my shows when he worked for me in Wild Promotions, which he was convinced was a rib of some kind. It wasn't. I just happened to think that it was a good, catchy little tune that people could clap along with and get into, but Mike was convinced that I was ribbing him in some way. Given our history of ribbing other people, and each other, I can understand why he was suspicious, but for once it actually wasn't a rib, and was completely on the level. So, without further ado, here it is, Walk of Life, by Dire Straits.
Well, that's just about it again for this time. Thank you all very, very much for listening. And again, if you've enjoyed this show, please do continue to support us by liking, sharing, retweeting our posts and recommending us to others. And we will continue to bring you more original content on each and every episode. Episode 13 will feature part two of our interview with Mike Musso, as we talk about lots of different people Mike has come into contact with during his wrestling days, as well as his experience of going for WWE tryouts, amongst other things. And, of course, there will be more John Short stories, as we recall the time that John's phone line was out of order, and he had to rely on various other methods of communication until it was fixed. But much more about that next time. So until then, this is Carl Stewart, signing off, and saying goodbye, and thank you.